Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, bringing you another exciting, interesting, introspective conversation with someone who I define as important within the context of independent music. Thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening to the show, thank you. This is awesome. I just love bringing new people into this this little family. I, I truly do believe that everybody that joins up on this show, usually they don't listen to kind of just one episode. They kind of start to follow along and start to really become engaged in the show. So anyways, if this is your first episode, just come on in. And if this is your 153rd episode, you're the man or woman. The guest this week, I can't even believe I'm saying this because this was a bucket list guest. This is a person that I had put on my list at the very, very, very start of the show. And I was like, ah, yeah, one of these days, maybe that'd be cool. Jim Atkins from Jimmy Eat World. The Jimmy Eat World and the Jim Atkins. I, I still can't believe that he was gracious enough to be like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I need to give a very, very special thank you to my friend Steve, who promotes shows in the beautiful state of Arizona. I've known him forever. He was able to facilitate this and I can't thank him enough for that. And obviously I can't thank Jim enough for wanting to hang out with me for, you know, a good hour and a half on a nice afternoon. So anyways, let's let's get some business stuff out of the way. I'll talk about Jim. I'll give you some updates on other stuff that's happening with the show and myself and the interview. This month is extremely important to the show. This is our fundraising month. I have taken the public radio model, which is basically like, you know, two months, two months out of the year, I will bug the hell out of you to support this thing. And it's been great so far. Sometimes I feel bad because there are people who are kind of return donors or it's like, these are people who've given me, honestly, over a hundred plus bucks to keep this thing going. And I can't thank you enough for that. So thank you, Sam and and Cameron, all these other people who have contributed to the show. I, I Honestly, can't thank you enough. That really, really means the world to me. So for those of you who listen to this on a semi-regular basis, I I encourage you to do one of two things. One, you can be a regular contributing sponsor to the show, which means basically your card is charged monthly and that's it. It'll go directly into my bank account. I'll be able to pay my producer, Tom Richfield. It, It just makes the whole process a lot easier for me. So you can do that by going to patreon.com backslash xpurposex or just click on the show notes of this show and you will be able to click directly through that. Or you can do a one-time donation, which a lot of you have been doing and I, I'm very grateful for that. I, I, I don't care what amount you give. People have been giving a dollar. People are giving $5. Like I said, people have been giving $50. It's amazing. So you can do that by visiting 100wordspodcast.com. On the right side of the page, you'll be able to see a bright yellow button that says donate. So please do that because I, I want to keep making this thing better for you. I want to be able to dedicate more time to it, more resources, all that stuff. Like I said, even if it's a dollar or $2 a month, or even it's just a one-time donation of a dollar, gives me that confidence to keep moving on. And also this sort of financial stability where it's like, you know, I'm not pulling money out of my kid's college fund <laughs> in order to keep this going. Cause honestly, I'd, I'd be doing this no matter what. So, and we're approaching next month is the three year anniversary of this show. And I can't even believe how many hours I've invested in this thing, but yeah, anyways, that's either here or there, but please donate if you are a regular listener, or even if you just like this one particular episode. So anyways, enough of the plea. And uh, I just got back from vacation myself, so my head's a little cloudy. I'm a little sick. The post-vacation sickness is kind of overtaking me. Uh, I went on a cruise, and those are awesome. And it was nice to kind of unplug for a minute. So I apologize for last week's 
episode being a little delayed in posting. Hopefully I will get back into the regular posting of things. And I mean, when I say regular, I mean like on time, like the Wednesday of when I promise you a new show. Enough about me, enough about fundraising. Jim Atkins. Jimmy World is one of my favorite bands of all time. I have a tattoo of their lyrics on my body, and they are a band that, in my mind, really hasn't put out uh, bad music pretty much their entire career, with the exception of their very, very first CD, which I own because I found randomly at some record store for cheap. And, you know, that's kind of just when they were, a, you know, basically a terrible pop punkish band. But that's fine. Every record they've put out since, from Static Prevails to Clarity to Invented, like their records are unbelievable. I measure my years as being really good if I get a new Jimmy Eat World release. This, there was a lot loaded into this conversation. And straight up, I was intimidated. And not so much because Jim is like a bad interview. I just, you know, it's those insecurities kind of leaping forward where it's like, oh man, what questions am I going to ask him that he hasn't been asked 400,000 times before? And maybe I'm just like too close to the matter and too close to the subject, but I really always try to focus on that when I'm doing the research for these interviews because I, I don't want this to just be another interview. I don't want this to kind of be like, oh yeah, here's here's another thing, go through the motions. How's your new record? Are you guys writing stuff? Like I, I get bored just even thinking about that. So let alone even asking those questions. So I had a laundry list of these these kind of really chunky questions, and then honestly. About in the middle of the conversation, you'll probably be able to hear the actual break where I kind of threw a lot of those questions away. And Jim and I just started to kind of dig into things. And it was uh, it was really, really interesting for me to hear his responses on a lot of these things and just kind of the difference between the outsider's perspective, which is my perspective, and then his perspective where it's like, oh, yeah, like uh, this is this is kind of what we were doing when that thing was happening. So anyways, without further ado, here is the discussion with Jim Atkins. I still can't even believe I'm saying that. And I will talk to you after the conversation is over. What's wrong, baby? Don't they treat you like they should? Did you take them you guys perform and it, it numbers over 30 because you guys obviously played Southern California a lot in the earlier years and then even now. But a show that kind of stuck out to me in the early years was uh, I saw you guys at the living room up in Santa Barbara, California. I think you were on tour with uh, Fluff, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, right, right, um, right. The reason that show stands out to me is because I think that was the first time where you guys kind of uh, ellipsed in my own head a, you know, I'm sure this is what you were going for, but a coveted uh, one of my favorite bands of all time spots. <laughs> and I don't know what it was about that particular show, but it just kind of like locked it into me where it's like, yeah, I'm going to be listening to these guys for pretty much the rest of my life. <laughs> um, would you reflect on those sort of like earlier tours? Because obviously at that point you were, you know, getting established, but when you reflect on that time, what sort of emotions, you know, get brought up in your own head? Well, I think like the, the earlier days of touring and especially like the, the first couple of years that we were a band, it's all still pretty fresh to me. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem like it's ever that long ago. I mean, like the friends that we met, stayed in contact with, I'm, I'm still in, in pretty regular communication with a lot of the other people that were in bands that we, you know, got to be friends with from around that time. You know, it doesn't feel like it's that long ago, to tell you the truth. Although so much is 
changed, you know, everything mm-hmm. has changed. It's all pretty fresh. It wasn't the first living room. It was like the uh, second incarnation of the living room, I think. And I think it was, it was us, no knife and fluff doing a West coast tour. It's like, I, Absolutely. like I remember everything about like what that, cause it, <laughs> it was just like the, I can't remember somebody I met two weeks ago, but I remember stuff like that. Every lyric to and justice for all, or every, every propaganda lyric. I remember that from when I was in high school, but I don't remember people, you know, somebody I met two weeks ago. I'm very impressed at the fact that you were able to place that it was the second living room. Cause yes, that you are indeed correct. <laughs> yeah. We played, we did, we did. I think we did do a show. I think we were playing, well, we were playing house parties in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Cal- California right. is a spot that like, you know, we were based out of like the Phoenix area in Arizona. That's, you know, San Diego, LA. It's just really the closest thing you, you can, you can hit if you want to mm-hmm. try to get out of town. So we would do that a lot. Right. Well, because, you, yeah, you weren't having aspirations to be like, hey, let's go to uh, Albuquerque. Because obviously that wasn't a really – I mean, it's a spot where bands play, obviously, now. But at that juncture, there wasn't much going on there. Yeah, we tried to play Albuquerque a lot. You know, we would do our, – our, our plan was that we would try to just do music first. And then it was like, well, how do we do that? Well, let's book our own little regional kind of like loop and let's go to California and go up as far as we can go and then come back. And then it was like, well, let's try to go in the other way. And we would go up to Denver and then Kansas City and then maybe back through Texas and then back home. Albuquerque would be on that sometimes. But, I mean, it was rough for us there for a while. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that uh, yeah, those those memories obviously still loom large in your head, and it's not like uh, you know a, a a distant faded memory. But you you yourself kind of backing up the uh, you were born and raised in Mesa, and I've grandmother who lives in Phoenix, and I've spent a lot of time in that area. Um, and then also like I, I played in bands for years and played a lot of shows within that general area and in Mesa as well. Mesa just strikes me as just obviously just you know a suburb of obviously Phoenix. Is that reflective of the time when you were growing up there? Just kind of, you know, sort of suburban life, as it were. Yeah, I mean, the the, the place where we all grew up. I mean, back then, most of it was citrus. I mean, now it's like completely like developed into strip mall insanity sprawl. But but back then, it was it was kind of the edge of things. Yeah, but just you know, it was just a suburb of the Phoenix metropolitan area. And and the way this the way the cities are here, it's like um, Southern California. You know, like where you cross through one municipality into the other and you don't realize you've gotten, you've gone into a new town, you know, like they're just bumped up next to each other. I don't know. There, there wasn't a whole lot of identity there. It's just like this, whatever. It's just, this, right. this, it's just a city. It's just a city, man. You know, like, and so, and you are, you are the oldest of your family as far as siblings are concerned, right? Yeah. Yeah. My brother is like three and a half years younger than me. And so it's just you two in the house uh-huh. as far as, and then what did your, uh, you know, wh- what were your parents doing as you were growing up as far as their jobs and stuff like that were concerned? Uh, my father's a veterinarian. Um, oh, so, so is, so is my uh, stepfather. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So we probably have a similar life experience of, uh, you know, character building assignment of hosing out stalls then. Absol- <laughs> Absolutely. I did, however, have the trump card of I- I'm allergic to a lot of pets, so I didn't have to do too much. But you- exactly what you're talking about, I 100% had to do yeah. that too. Was there ever any, uh, I guess, gleam in his eye in regards to uh, you taking up the practice? No, there's never any. I mean, they're supportive of, of me and my brother doing whatever. It's not exactly like um, a trade you pass down. You know, it's, it's, right, it's, right. it's, a, it's a profession and it's, it's really tough to get into. I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I 
if I showed an aptitude for it, they would have definitely encouraged me, but it wasn't like there was a pressure to, to do something in uh, medicine or veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was your, was your mom at home taking care of you guys? Yeah. I mean, she, she would do occasionally like jobs here and there, like teaching every once in a while or, or accounting for my dad's practice. Dude, it sounds like I mean, that's my mom currently still does my father's books, even yeah. though it's like by the, by this point, he should have hired somebody else. But <laughs> it's like, all right, I guess she's been doing it for so long. Yeah, yeah. My, my mom helps out with the practice kind of a lot. That's sort of her main thing. You know, as you were, you know, kind of growing up in, in that area and matriculating through elementary school and stuff like that. What kind of kid did you find yourself being? Were you, uh, you know, super into sports? Were you kind of an indoor kid? Were you, uh, you know, into into art? Where, uh, where would you place yourself? I was average all around. You know, I, I just explored aptitudes and hung out with basically with whatever group of kids I was buddies with at the time. You know, I played basketball, I skated. Um, I was never like really great at either of those, but I was okay enough to, to yeah. speak the common language with, with my peer group and get along. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't really until high school or well, it actually was until about junior high that I kind of started mingling with the music people. And so you you strike me as the type of person too, like if I obviously didn't know your history and know where your band is from and everything like that, you would strike me as like the sort of quintessential Southern California dude as far as just like, a, yeah, man, I'm just kind of laid back and, and chill. Like it seems like that kind of was obviously always how you were or is that just something that you've kind of, you know, settled into now? I, w- I wouldn't really like classify myself like that. But I would say that coming from where coming from the environment that we came from, we definitely didn't and still don't take things very seriously. Right. Maybe it's not it's not a lack of caring or being proud of of our work. It's just that <laughs> come on, dude, really. <laughs> what about the uh, characterization of being kind of a quintessential Southern California person? Like, so do you do you would you define yourself as chill or do you get pretty uh, anxious when it comes to certain things? I think we all get anxious about certain things, but I wouldn't True. I wouldn't say True. that. Um, not, not, no, no, no. It takes it takes a lot to really get me stressed out about uh, an occurrence. Sure, sure. I failed. To, <laughs> I failed to see the 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 need to expend energy on a lot of things that that seem to stress out people. The the old adage of "Don't sweat the small stuff." Yeah, it's just and every, a lot of things seem a lot smaller to me than 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 a lot of other people. I mean, I I'd, I'd, I'd say that's that's fair. So then, as you started to, uh, you know, like I said, grow up and kind of form an identity. You've mentioned in, in previous interviews that sort of, you know, theatrical metal, as it were, <laughs> was uh, something that you were interested in from like, you know, Quiet Riot and Def Leppard and all that sort of stuff. Was it, was it just the sheer like grandiosity of what it was that they were doing that was like, this shit rules, man? Or was it like just the fact that you kind of wanted to shred in some capacity? I think it was just the MTV aspect of it all. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. dude, these guys rule. And was it that, that was the initial exposure, like via, via MTV of just like, wow, that's like the music videos and everything yeah. like that? Yeah, it was just like, you know, the welcome to the Thunderdome Scorpions video and uh, Def Leppard guy running around with a sword like the countless the countless airplane hangar videos with like uh, a million park hands and dudes just you know looking ridiculous rocking out sure pretty much the the giant wave that came over the crowd during duran duran's reflex is what made me want to be in music i like how you could distill it down to that one particular moment yeah. i was like yeah that that's where it switched yeah so i mean but um, the, the, all that was like dude i should play guitar <laughs> that looks rad right right that looks fun yeah. um and, and, and back then you know that was probably like God, I don't know, 
second grade, third grade, maybe. Okay. I was playing playing (laughs) piano and uh, after I saw all that stuff, my dad played guitar. So that's kind of what made me want to explore guitar. So that that was just kind of kicking around the house. You would just, you know, fiddle with it. And that was kind of interesting because you saw that in conjunction with obviously the fact that sweet bands played guitar too. Yeah, he could play, but it was just, it was definitely just, it was definitely a hobby. Right, right. Where did the kind of exposure into more, you know, for lack of a better term, like independent music from, you know, whatever punk, hardcore, that sort of stuff. When did that start to, you know, infiltrate you? Was it via, you know, high school um, or friends that kind of existed? Because yeah. as an older, as an older sibling, you didn't, you didn't have that older brother kind of being like, yo, here's the, here's your starter kit, man. No, not really. I mean, I would pick things up like um, from the skate buddies that I had, I would, I would pick up some things, you know, violent Femmes were definitely an early one in there. And uh, actually my cousin, I have a cousin who lives in uh, Nebraska that we would visit. Uh, all my family's from Nebraska. So we'd go back there for summers and Christmases. And, uh, you know, one of my cousins who's a little bit older than me, like, He's probably the guy who turned me on to like all the Discord stuff and like the the, the hip Omaha local bands. <laughs> right. I was gonna I was gonna I was gonna say like you would never define the cultural hub of being in Nebraska like that you would travel there to be exposed to DC hardcore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, but that's 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 how it happened, you know. Where in uh, Nebraska was it in Omaha? Yeah, or? Omaha. That's funny that you yeah you had to take a pilgrimage and uh, that was uh, the exposure that you got there. Once your parents started to, I, I know you mentioned earlier that your parents were obviously supportive of your your musical uh, interest but was there ever any things that you started to kind of bring home that made your parents uh, you know cause for concern so to speak uh maybe twisted sisters stay hungry they weren't <laughs> sure. they weren't really into the album cover on that they thought that was like a little out there yeah, i never i never had i was never into obnoxious like shock rap i mean they probably didn't get the music i was listening to but i was i was never you know i, I didn't seek out shock value things if they did, if they were shocked at some of the more aggressive metal that I was listening to, like you know, then then they didn't really show it. Right? <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they weren't one of those parents that obviously burst into your room and started to take records, and you were like, "Wait a minute, what? What?" Definitely. So did you did you did you start to try to adopt any of the aesthetic as far as the uh, metal uh, influence that was uh, creeping into your life? You know, were you growing long hair and wearing uh, you know tight jeans and. Uh, leather jackets and such no no i mean i tried to grow long hair when i was in high school that was that was um that was more from like seeing bands like faith no more got it and i I wanted mike Patton's hair dude i wanted like long purple hair (laughs) is what i wanted i remember from seeing them play saturday night live and i was like oh man that's the raddest i dude i love those moments that you can reflect on when it's like that single iconic thing where you see and you're like that's what i'm going for (laughs) oh sure yeah that's incredible so yeah, obviously you did. You did not accomplish that. No, no. Yeah, that that got grew out of that pretty quick. There's something. <laughs> there's definitely. I mean, you got to you got to try stuff on to see how it feels. I, I I think I did a pretty good job of paying attention to uh, the data that comes back from that effort, altering my life to do something different. I love the way you phrase that. The the data, the feedback I was receiving from people. Okay, that's not working. <laughs> well, sure, well, you know, I think it's more like when I started playing guitar. I subscribed to all the guitar magazines and the shredder dudes were like, you know, the people that I kind of looked up to, I guess, mm-hmm. like the Satriani, Vi, Eric Johnson, whoever, whoever was on the cover of Guitar Hero. I mean, Guitar guitar Player Magazine was, was somebody that like, I, I was like, oh, who is this? It was Yngwie Malmsteen. Like, I got to check that guy out. 
you know, it was sort right. of like, but I, I pretty quickly, I realized I would never be a player like that. So right. I had to kind of alter my plan for myself and in, in how I would push myself or challenge myself or my expectations for, for even pursuing this thing for, for myself. It's like, I'm not going to be that. What, you know, what else can I do? For, fortunately, right. around that time, I discovered like the, the, the indie stuff that was floating around and that just kind of spoke to me. So and, and it seemed like more uh, attainable. Yeah, it's, you could kind of reach out and touch it, so to speak. It wasn't this, you know, I, all right, I got to spend 10 years playing this guitar before I even get to you know, a level where I can understand what these guys are doing. Right. And so the, uh, this is something that that's kicked around my head where just because obviously since Jimmy world has a, such a, you've existed for so long, it, it, is technically Jimmy world, like your first band. Um, we had played around in, in, in groups with everybody like in high school and junior high. Yeah. So technically you played shows prior to Jimmy world. Like what was, what were you trying to accomplish with those, uh, those first couple bands as far as like, whether it was sonically trying to emulate something or was it just simply trying to, you know, play a show? Goofy punk rock spaz basically. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's always a fresh crop of 14 year old guys seeing, having their first kind of punk rock experience out there and not exactly understanding why it speaks to them, but, but just feeling this compulsion that they have to, they just feel that it's, it's like, oh, I want to do that. Like, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to explain really, but it's just like this, um, it's compelling. You don't exactly know how to put it out there, but you, you're, you're sure going to go for it. And, and I would say that's, that's kind of what was happening at first for us. Technically, what, what was your, what was your first show that you actually like played? Uh, it's probably opening up for some punk band at the Mason jar in Arizona, a matinee, a matinee gig for like six people, basically. Sure. Our drummers, right, right. our drummer's girlfriend and the other bands like kid manager, <laughs> of course, 15 year old manager who, who, who got them the, the matinee gig for nobody. So like, that was right. probably it. were you, uh, were you singing and playing guitar at the time in this, this, uh, this, this punk band, as you put it? No, I was doing backups maybe. Okay. Playing guitar. I, I didn't start singing until about a little bit into the band until into Jimmy right. world in high school. You strike me just as, you know, this is a sheer projection. And obviously if I'm wrong, completely feel free to shoot me down. Um, You've always seemed comfortable, obviously, as a singer and with your vocal abilities. Um, but, you know, kind of matching up your personality with, you know, being a front man and sort of the, you know, the stereotypical uh, trappings that come along with it, where it's like, oh, the singer wants to be the center of attention. And, you know, oh, they're, everyone is going to recognize the singer of the band. Was that something that you had to kind of, you know, ad adjust to as far as like, oh, like, I guess I am going to get the, this attention or, you know, kind of the, the sort of reluctant frontman syndrome that I kind of, you know, I, I see other people have to like learn how to do. Is that something you had to, you know, kind of grow into? You know, maybe a little bit because Tom, our other guitar player, like he sang most of the songs earlier on. Uh, he was, he was, he, when we performed, he was always in the center and slowly it's sort of like, it just kind of morphed in this, in this place where I was singing more often than he was. I think just as a band, we just decided, you know, I should be whoever's singing more. I should probably be in the center. Like logically speaking, of course. Well, right. I mean, I, and I looked, I, I, and I, I sort of wrestled with that. I was like, well, look at pavement. Right. Like he doesn't do that. They don't have to fucking do that. That's we could be wherever we, we want. We could be wherever we want. Yeah. Look at Fugazi doesn't do that. Like so, it's it, but it, but it does make it. But you know, it's it's like it's not cliche if it didn't work. Like people, mm -hmm. it just it just it just helps with the overall communication of what you're of 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 the music, I think, to present it in that way. So we tried it 
and it seemed like it worked a lot better. We had a, we had a guy that was on the road with us helping out selling stuff, and he and he was like a little bit older than all of us, and he was like, um, he was he he was he had my back on it. Like, well, I didn't fight it, but I was not vocal about it. But I was definitely like, why do we have to do this? He was like, no, it works. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. I guess I can't fight this. It's just what it is. Like, I I don't. It's just part of playing music that you're out there right. that that happens to be the case. And singing mm-hmm. is, I like singing and it's the way I think about music is a lot of like, you know, singing is a big part of it. Being the center of attention is a, uh, a byproduct. Uh, obviously that was never your, you know, ego driven goal. It was just a, a pure function of how you wanted to express yourself. Yeah. It's just a pure function of playing music that I happen yep. to be the dude who sings. Right, right. <laughs> and tell, tell me this too, because I've always noticed this as well, where by default, I think a lot of people turn to the singer of the band as being like the business person, you know, the most savvy, the one that's like booking the shows or doing that sort of stuff. Any of those responsibilities, like on the earlier days, you know, fall on your shoulders? Were you kind of like the hustle guy to put stuff together, whether it's like shows or, you know, finding releases and that sort of stuff? No, our drummer, Zach, he's he's always been that guy. And and no one obviously looked to you towards that. It was like, oh, no, that, that's not Jim. That's Zach. That's, that's his deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was that was always his role. You always need at least one person in the band to be able to do that because it, otherwise it's, you know, you're hurting cats at that point. Exactly. Yeah. One person needs to be like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of like the side gig for your side gig. Right. Yeah. So he you, you would probably properly define him as like the the band dad, so to speak. The band uh, internal manager. Referencing your early years, obviously, with with the, uh, you know, the the first full length and I'm not referencing uh, Static Prevails, the uh, the full length that obviously, you, you know, was a complete representation of what you guys were doing as a early punk band. Do people bring that up to you often as far as like, I can't believe you guys used to sound like this, whatever. I I define it as kind of, you know, adorably bad, where it was like you guys were obviously finding your feet as musicians and obviously what you wanted to do musically, but there wasn't any, you know, illusions of grandeur about what you were doing with that first full length. Right. It was just basically high school kids, making music that sounded like their record collection. Right, right. That was, you know, and, and the loftiest goal that we ever had was, was, was actually recording it. So it was kind of like, you know, like that, that's, that's what, that's you, what you, you get. achieved your goal. Right, right. <laughs> what, what was the last time you listened to that? Oh man, stuff? I don't know, like a couple of years ago, maybe. Cause I, I th- that's one of my favorite things in order to, um, you know, kind of suss out how intimate, you know, how intimate of a bond that a a person has with your particular band where it's like, do you know they have a full length before static prevails? And they're like, no. And it's like, well, just, just look around. Don't look too hard the, though. Cause it sucks. No, exactly. The, you got, you know, actually it doesn't I, suck. It's just like, you know I mean? Come on. You can't like for, for what we knew how to do and where we were in life. It's like, that's the best we, that's the best we could do, man. You know, like, and that's, and we, we maxed it out for what we knew how to do and what we were, we were capable of, <laughs> you know, like I, no, you can't, I, you can't judge. We're really going to go and judge everything that you've ever done based on with the standard that you hold yourself to now. It's like it's kind yeah. of you'll you'll just drive yourself insane. Oh, yeah. it's. It, I mean, it, honestly, it's irresponsible. It's it's a complete I mean, that's essentially for all intent and purposes, like, you know, your guys demo to the world, you know. And so it's like getting no matter whose first recorded output like is always going to be like what you define as probably the worst thing ever <laughs> retro retroactively. You could find maybe charming elements of it, but there's no way that people are like, dude, 
my demo is probably the best thing I've ever done. There's those people out there. Really? I mean, I, I know, I know there's the adage of like, oh yeah, their demo was the best thing. Like that whole sort of, you know, elitist, I knew them before you sort of attitude, but maybe just from like an internal, like your own musical output, there's no way that people are going to ever reference their original demo as being <laughs> the superior product. Uh, us no. So as you were, you know, going through high school and then started to, you know, go to college and everything, because um, you, you studied uh, journalism, right? Yeah. Did you like? Were you engaged with school at all, or was it one of those things like it was just kind of like you were simply biding your time as you were kind of going through high school and and then having to go to college? No, I mean, I I, I put effort in. I tried to do my best job at it. You know, like I still kind of figuring out what I what it is I I was passionate about and wanted to do, but you know, I knew that I needed to engage to have a shot or the best shot. Mm-hmm. Was it was there any conflict with between uh, you and your parents as you were you know like whatever bone to pick that most teenagers have with their parents like you know was there was there strife in the household over you know what you would probably define now as you know silly things that you were doing no yeah I mean the things they got in trouble for I definitely deserve to get in trouble for them but it wasn't I mean that wasn't a lot you know like simple vandalism simple <laughs> teenage kids pushing the boundaries and you know run and finding that they can't and then. Um, and then just realizing you shouldn't do that again. <laughs> this is a, sure. this is pretty yeah. boring, pretty Tested. average, you know, nice, supportive growing up. I mean, which it's nice because obviously there's there's that whole arena of, of people that subscribe to, you know, art is only created through absolute pain and, you know, anger and frustration, which obviously there's an element to that. But I've always subscribed to the fact that it's like, well, yeah, happiness is an emotion that's just as powerful as sadness so that can be you know you can be creative in that space too well it's about being honest you know i think that that's what translates you know it's kind of like um if you're gonna find if you can find the honesty in that then it it doesn't there's going to be somebody that probably pick up on it i know in other other interviews you've spoken about um you know having a uh, i'll use air quotes here uh, a production company in college where you started to you know put on shows and uh start to bring you know bands from out of town and stuff like that was that surely a function of i have a band so I can book these shows and we can play it. Um, or was it the, uh, you know, were there other desires attached to it? No, that was just, um, I mean, I booked, we booked, we booked a lot of shows for bands that weren't, didn't have anything to do with like things I was involved in. It was just sort of like, I don't know, it was just being involved in the scene. I don't know. It just seemed like something I could do that, that I could contribute to that was, um, it was kind of fun and got us like, uh, the social aspect of it all was fun. What, what were some of the, uh, valuable lessons you learned from maybe shows that you put on that, that did terribly where there was like, you know, four people and you were like, sorry, band, you know, I'm paying you out of my own wallet or whatever. What do you, do you remember any of those, uh, initial failings from that perspective? Yeah, there was, it was mostly failings actually. I feel sort of bad for anybody that we worked with. So actually some of the shows are pretty good. Karate actually said that our show was one of their best that they booked <laughs> amazing but, that, but there were like six people there <laughs> it, was like, it was like 97 at the time too i mean you know arizona wasn't exactly uh i mean it was known to be a independent music tour stop but you know i mean there wasn't a ton of stuff going i mean it's like you know groundwork like a hardcore band like there wasn't a ton of stuff going on there so it's like i'm sure in some respects you probably felt like you were trying to you know, like you said, contribute to a scene and sort of build something for the future. I mean, I think, and, and that's the way Arizona has always felt to me. It's like you, you have, there's the possibility of, of, 
of being able to contribute here and actually make a difference. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of people here. Um, and there's a lot of people doing good work and that should be supported, but it's always been tricky to rally that sort of that mass support to kind of break out of the scene. Mm-hmm. But the scene itself is, re- is really supportive and, and there's a lot of really great people here. Yeah. But it did feel like that you're kind of like part of something bigger than yourself by, by getting mm-hmm. involved in that. And, the rewards from that are tangible because the expectations are just so minimal. You know, like sure. it's, it's a good and bad thing. You can do whatever you want here. That's good. But the bad thing is that there's very few people who are going to care. Totally. There's very few people that are going to notice what you're right. doing in any in any capacity. So you can go ahead and do whatever you want here. Right. So it's so amazing. It's, the world is your oyster. Exactly. It's just it's a very small it's going world. It's very hard for anyone else to care. And so, you know, as you guys obviously started to, you know, play out uh, and you started to, you know, whatever, gain some notoriety. And then obviously you guys, you know, you got signed to Capital and, you know, you've made you've made it clear that it was always one of those things where you always felt like, why, why, why are we given this opportunity? Like, why did someone sign us to Capital? Um, I'm sure I'm sure there was obviously a lot of excitement when um, you guys were initially kind of talking to them was there was there kind of like a lot of people sort of throwing their hat in the ring as far as wanting to work with you guys from a future perspective around that time no no very few we had we had okay. no business being on a major label when we when we signed that deal with them and very few people even knew who we were it was i mean w- w- were independent labels talking to you guys uh, no, just from no, like no, no. no just absolutely absolutely nobody, nobody <laughs> knew who we were the 2000 people total that bought like our collection of seven inch splits with other bands mm-hmm. those people knew who we were but beyond that no one i i, I definitely remember because uh, at, at the time when uh, stack prevails came out there i was working at an independent record store and i always kind of defined when a label is really trying to push a band by how many promotional copies they would send us and I, I, th- I want to say we received at least like five or six copies of, of Static Reveals. And I always found it to be like, we don't need that many copies. Like this is a small store. Um, but usually I can also tie that directly into the fact that the label really didn't know how to present the band. So they were just kind of like, we'll just print up 400,000 posters and <laughs> 10,000 promo CDs and just throw it around. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the truth of the matter is that they were really good. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit different now, or maybe it's even more hyper this. They're really good at, at dropping the hammer on a, a record that's moving like 30,000 a week. Mm-hmm. They have no idea what to do with with something that's sold 3,000 total for. It's sort of like a, it's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. Like nothing is going to be good without somebody else telling them it's good. How do you get that development without development? How do you get that? How, how do you build up to that point where it makes sense to drop the hammer when there's no development? And pretty much the major label system back then seemed like there's really no point to do it unless, unless you know, the best situation that what, what happened to us was the best situation that could have ever happened is like we were able to make records the way we wanted to and go on tour, get that chance to find ourselves musically and, you know, challenge ourselves and become better at what we were doing. And also to naturally just get out in front of people and play and get better at that. The worst thing that could have happened is if stat- like a song on Static Prevails went crazy. The worst thing. 
would have would have right. been if Sack Prevails would have blown up and then would have been like this this nineties alternative band. Especially at the time when that came out, because it's like, yeah, you would have been looking down the barrel of the second wave grunge acts that were coming out and then looking down the barrel of what was happening in the late nineties slash early two thousands when, you know, bands like all of the, you know, the the second generation emo or whatever you'd like to label that as. So yeah, you guys probably would have been in a really really tough place if that if that were to occur yeah who knows what it would have happened so it, it was it was signing to capital just a pure function of like well this seems like the best option right now it was like there's no one else talking to us right right i have no it was my roommate gonna put out my our next record again like, i don't know right like, you know <laughs> we got at, we got nothing else it was like at the very worst we're gonna have some funny stories about going to la right that was <laughs> that was the loftiest expectation we had there at, at that time too. Like, were you? Uh, when were you actually able to kind of step back in regards to like you know not having to come home from tour and like you know work a day job? I presume that wasn't probably until a little bit later, or was it around that time when Static Prevails hit? It wasn't until like Bleed American hit that I had that I stopped coming home to work at the art supply store. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. I, I, I I assumed that, but I wasn't, uh, I wasn't sure. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until it wasn't, it never seemed like we lost a whole lot of money. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like the band was putting us into debt. I mean, we weren't, we weren't mm-hmm. making anything. It was self-sustaining. Yeah, but yeah, it was self-sustaining, but I mean, we were 18 and 19 and, and we didn't really, and we slept, we slept on floors and we had zero <laughs> responsibilities or commitments. And, um, I think Rick right. and Tom, Rick and Tom shared a, a room at a, at a, a house in, in Tempe. And I think their rent for that room was like a hundred bucks. They, no they, had, they had bunk beds. Sure. They, had, <laughs> they shared a bunk bed in a room that had a hundred dollar rent. That's adorable. You just, you were built for that lifestyle of having no overhead. So that way you didn't have any, you know, crushing bills to come home to. Right. What did your, uh, so, uh, you know, as you started to pursue music, you know, heavily, from being gone on tour so much, you know, how, you draw obviously dropped out of college. Were your parents kind of like, so Jim, is this really the, the move you're going to make? Uh, we're kind of concerned. They were concerned at first. I mean, when I broke down to them, like, what here's here's you know, Capitol Records is I mean is is interested in working with us. If we get involved in this deal with them, that means that potentially because the first thing we did was like a um, I guess it was kind of like a developmental sort of thing. Basically, they would um, they gave us a little bit of money to make demos. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after about after a certain amount of time, like it was up to them to say we want to work with you or, you know, um, maybe next time. I was like, you know, if, if that happens, that means that we're going to be, I probably won't make this a priority and, and school is going to have to be on the back burner. And it was just, you know, I think like, like all parents, they just want like, you know, they just wanted like a, me to be able to take care of myself and the, the uncertainty of, 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 of putting your, um, all your effort into one thing. That's just so crazy. Mm-hmm. That was a little, that was a little like shocking for them, but you know, I was so, we were all just so young. It's like they had the perspective to realize that like there's still time to get your act together. Right. If this, if this crashes and burns, they're only going to be like 21 years old. Yeah. So. Yeah. You'll right. know it pretty quick. And honestly, you know, what 21 year old really has their act together anyway. Like it's kind of, right, right. <laughs> no, true. you know, like really you're 18 and you're saying, and you know exactly what you want to do for the rest of your life. That's probably <laughs> yeah. going to, you know, that's probably going to be, be open to some change in that. Cause there's probably going to be some things that happen real soon that will inform you otherwise. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Real, real life may come crashed out on you and you'll have to completely change your plan. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's okay, but it's, it's, there's, there's time for that. With Clarity, you've, you've often mentioned, you know, that you were, you guys all kind of saw the writing on the wall where it was like, 
All right. Well, this probably will be the last time that we can do all this crazy stuff in the studio. Um, and so we might as well just soak this experience up for, for what it is. Were you guys kind of, you know, having a sort of a contingency plan in, in your own heads, whether you were executing it from the, you know, business management perspective is a different story, but were you guys in your own heads being like, all right, so we're just going to kind of return to the, you know, whatever, like signed to Big Wheel Recreation or signed to, you know, a larger independent label and then kind of exist from that perspective? Maybe not as a band collectively, but did you in your own head have any sort of uh, those future plans? No, there was zero planning of any future. <laughs> right. It was just like, eh, you know, uh, it might be, it might be, uh, we might never get a chance to do, to rent timpani. So let's do that. It's tough to say because like, if you look at what's happened to the band over time, it does look like this sort of wild ride of ups and downs and uncertainty. And, you know, what did you do when they dropped you in like, but from our perspective, like it was always an upward trajectory from um, the earliest days of static prevails onward. It was like, um, you know, we were putting in the work and touring and always, there's always somebody that was willing to put out like a, um, a record for us and we would play shows. The next time we'd come back to town, there would be more people or we would have a better, you know, um, we would be supporting somebody bigger. It's like, and this is just the way it was, it was going. We didn't think that like there was any cause for alarm at any point and it was still super fun. Why would you think about a backup plan for that? No, that's honestly, that's a really important point that you've exemplified because yeah, from an outsider's perspective, and I include myself in that where it's like, I, I look at all the, you know, the, the business travails you guys have been through. You guys, not a, you guys had a reason to remain positive because you were seeing sort of the, the fruits of your labor paying off just in the sheer support of your music from a live show perspective where you felt that there was still momentum even though crazy stuff was happening with you know your labels and stuff you're just like well whatever as long as we find as long as we find another person to put out our next thing when we're ready to put it out then that's all we can hope for yeah you know we were having fun and every step of the way the amazing things that we were getting to do were what we were focusing on. It wasn't like mm -hmm. disappointment in record sales. It wasn't disappointment. It wasn't disappointment in anything. It was just, you know, it, sort of steady as she it goes. Was just pinch yourself. Like, can you believe we're doing this the entire time? There's not room. There's not room to get bummed out on what you're missing. If you're constantly stoked on what you have. To be honest, it's a rare mentality. I, I, I think that what you you guys have all collectively put your heads in like that. I, many bands don't experience that usually. And even humans, like you're always looking for what you don't have. You're like, well, that per that that person's got that thing. Man, I wish we had that. And then you get that, and then you're like, oh, but I, but that other person has that other thing. Yeah, that's yeah. like um, getting really upset about someone not showing up at your front door with a, a briefcase of money. Totally. Like, you know, like, well, it's it's like you know, it's just sort of like deluding. It's it's delusion. You know, it's like. Boy, it'd be sure it'd be sure awesome if somebody came to my front door with a whole bunch of money and just hand it to me. That'd be great, right? And then right. and then, you know, like, oh yeah, you, you find yourself thinking about that over and over again and it still hasn't happened yet. And then finally you start resenting that person for not showing up and, and then you finally it just it, it creeps in and it just poisons your whole life. And it's just not worth it. Yeah, no, it's 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 an incredibly important lesson to to kind of live by. Obviously, as the band started to, you know, when you reached your kind of, you know, commercial peak was obviously, ble you know, bleed American in regards to the just the sheer exposure of the band. Um, you know, I'm sure there's like, you know, a few defining moments uh, during that record cycle where you were having those sort of like pinch me moments. Uh, I'm sure it was on a daily basis. Are there are there any that stick out in your head in regards to like 
just the the sort of out of body experience surreal we're playing you know saturday night live or whatever like we're doing these things that are just like they don't make any sense to us because we're just a terrible band from arizona or whatever um the whole time was like that <laughs> saturday night yeah. live was definitely the highlight of that surrealness for sure it's like oh mm-hmm. yeah there's cameron diaz we're over yeah. here it's like oh i just talked to philip seymour hoffman and he said he'd never heard us before but he likes our band that happened hey will ferrell's like hey you did a good job man yeah yeah cool man thanks thanks bro who am i that's doing this like what what just happened maybe playing brixton playing our first sold out show at brixton academy in in london that was mm-hmm. another kind of out-of-body weirdness because you know just the fact that people outside of you know internationally would 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 respond to it. I mean, that was a huge, bizarre thing. You know, at the time, all that stuff is sort of happening. You're just kind of going with it because it's just insane. It wasn't, it wasn't, it it wasn't, you have no time to react. No, it wasn't until I think I feel like long after we got off the road and, um, and started working on the futures album that any of it sunk in. Right. Right. I I definitely remember that time too, where it was like, you know, a, a lot of people who were, you know, quote unquote diehard Jimmy World fans that obviously had celebrated, you know, all of your earlier splits and recordings and stuff like that started to, you know, whatever, develop an attitude where it was like, of course, because, oh, oh, now Jimmy World's like fucking sellouts, like they're played in, you know, soundtracks and the radio or whatever. Um, And so you started to see this weird dividing line at shows where it was like, you know, I, I mean, I fortunately never fell into that camp because I was still just like, you guys, you guys are great. Keep doing what you're doing. I don't care who's coming to the shows as long as you guys still get to do what you do. Did you guys have any sort of, you know, uh, I wouldn't even say negative feelings in your own heads, but did you notice that sort of like, you know, uh, push and pull of like, well, I'm sorry if you can't follow us anymore because you feel like we're not, you know, the band we used to be or whatever. Um, or did you guys just kind of like keep your heads down and just do what you do? There's been an underlying element of that, like since the beginning because of our affiliation with Capital. You know, we'd have our we'd be selling records at a at, a, at like a fucking like hardcore fest that we were playing, <laughs> getting all sorts of crazy looks from the dude with like neck tattoos and plug earrings, um, with his <laughs> with his distro set up at a table right next to our thing that had a big Capital logo on it. Uh-huh. You know, like that's been that's been uh, that's been our entire career as a band. Right. And so yeah, everyone always reflects on the like, did these guys really pay their dues? Like that that's the argument that I find so hilarious where it's like no one can throw stones at you guys because it's just like, well, do, like we've done everything. It just happened to be that we signed a capital. Like, I'm sorry that that was a thing back then. But but you, you obviously, you know, you in your own head didn't let that letting that issue linger in your own head too long. Yeah, because I guarantee you that anybody with an issue like that has never had to face that sort of dilemma for themselves. Anyone that would sort of, anyone that would sort of judge or push that, push that on somebody else hasn't either have issues with it on their own or they've just never actually had to deal with that. Sure. They're projecting. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Obviously almost everybody in every interview (laughs) that you've done for the past like five years always is like, Hey man, what's the secret sauce about your band staying together? Like, do you guys, you know, just like, you know, keep everything separate when you're at home and like all that sort of, you know, again, projections that are placed on you guys. But you do seem like each individual member seems to kind of strike that, uh, that good balance between being rooted in kind of the real world, you know, where it's like, yeah, you're going grocery shopping and you're living in the the world that everybody exists in. And then also being able to, you know, exist in this uh, hyper reality of being a rock band. I presume that that is very deliberate on your guys' part to be like, well, this is just our life. Like when we're, you know, when we're home, we're 
engrossed in these things and we're, you know, being with our families and we're doing all this stuff because that kind of the, uh, the enjoyment that we get out of playing in a band. Yeah. I think, uh, the people that are very different are much higher than us on the scale of stardom. You know, the people whose lives have to are, are when we were, um, doing gigs, opening up for Blink-182 and Green Day, when, when Bleed American was starting to get some juice, it was like, you know, those other guys, other people in other band had security. They needed it because they would get mobbed everywhere they, they went. And I don't know, I don't know exactly why it is, if it's just the way we have public image that is kind of like always followed us around or our desire not to necessarily chase a public image at all. But um, now, I, I mean, I, I get recognized sometimes like at concerts because, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in like local sometimes but it's it's like no one no one no one knows who we are <laughs> no one cares who we are like our lives are normal like well it, it's funny i'm not i'm not gonna lie this was definitely a really ner- this is a really nerdy thing for me to admit but again like i mentioned earlier it's like my grandma lives in phoenix and i 100 percent. this was like i don't know a thanksgiving two or two ago I, I totally saw you at a whole foods and it was one of those things where i was just like do I want to be that sort of Punisher guy where it's like, oh, hey, Jim, I really like your band. And I was like, I'm just going to I'm just going to leave you alone. I'm sure you would have been nice about it and it would have been fine. And like you said, it doesn't happen very often. But it's like you always have that inner dialogue where, you know, you don't know what that person's experiencing. And, you know, you're grocery shopping. You don't want to be, you know, bugged by some dude like me being like, oh, I love your band. No, you know? no. it's. I mean, it's totally fine. Like I'm I'm fanatical about music and there's, there's people I really look up to and 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 I know what that feels like. So right. I, I would never be, if someone's approached me in that regard, like I, you know, I get it. It's like, that's, it's a little bit, it's a little <laughs> bit weird cause it's me, but you know, I, I get right. it. <laughs> totally. I, I think you did hit a good point there where it was like the fact that, you know, there, there really isn't any, um, for lack of a better term, like pageantry about what Jimmy world does. Like, you know, you guys get up on stage, you play, like you wear clothes that, you wear the whole day like there's nothing um about it that screams you know unapproachable because of that display people are 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 less apt to be like oh there's probably there's probably a darkness inside that band or there's probably something you know crazy happening where it's like if you guys were obviously you know whatever dressing up like Def Leppard there would obviously be a lot more to talk about exactly the whole the whole train wreck aspect of what we do is just completely diffused like it's a non-starting conversation there's not going to be you know there's there's just no there's no juicy like story there that that people can can run with and that that sort of that sort of confounded media for a time people were trying to people were scratching their heads with us about like what do we how do we where does this fit in you know like do do we put do we put them in us weekly no we can't do that um, where do we put them? How, I, I don't know. Uh, four dudes. Who, how am I going to sell this? It's been a hindrance that's been, you know, looking back on things. It, 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 yeah, it, it held us back somewhat that there wasn't like um, that we had. We, we suffered from the collective soul syndrome somewhat. I think that's probably the first time that word has been spoken. The collective soul syndrome. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's going to be my new band name. Collective soul syndrome. You should actually just take your solo act out like that. Yeah, it's perfect. But 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 you know what I mean, though? It's like there's if you start chasing the approval of some uncertain listenership like the, that's that's just it doesn't seem honest. And yeah, it might buy you a little bit of 
extra um, story time, but it's not, you're going to build, I mean, I don't know. We've been able to do exactly what we want for over 20 years because we were just honest about who we were, what we liked, and how we as music fans wanted to present what we do as music fans ourselves. And we've just kind of stuck to that without any sense of trying to chase like the like a look or an image sound it just resonates longer and that's obviously why you know i mean i'm just using myself as an example because that's i I could speak from experience where it's like you know when i got into you and you were you know when i was 16 years old or whatever that's why i can still genuinely like what you guys do because there's you you are a, a quantifiable commodity in the fact that your your next record is going to be different but not so different as to the point where it would be like Oh, dude, like now you guys are, you know, like a heavy band, you know, like you're not making these drastic departures that um, alienate people. All you're doing is just building on your sound and refining it, you know? Yeah, we should totally make a biohazard record next. Right. <laughs> I, I I don't see why you can't release some version of a, uh, a hardcore slash heavy music project that you guys do on your own. Yeah, I mean, we got the metal kid inside of us all. Right, exactly. Like our, our our demographic, I think, like, guys our age, like, there's going to be, you just have, I mean, I don't know, if, I don't know any anybody, my any guy my age escaped their youth without, like, a really intense metal phase. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's kind of like a, a rite of passage in a way. There's two last things I want to hit on before I let you go was uh, the fact that you guys are all still, you know, located in Arizona and you all live there. Something that I've always admired about what you guys have done, too, is the the strong affiliation that you guys have towards, you know, supporting the not only the local scene, but just kind of, you know, Arizona as a whole. Because uh, I think a lot of, you know, a, a lot of bands that get to a certain level, they fracture apart. Dudes move here. Dudes move there. That sort of stuff. The band becomes less identifiable with a particular city. But you guys have obviously rallied around that fact. And you in particular, I presume that's a very deliberate focus where you're just like, no, I like living here. So there's no reason for me to be anywhere else. I've always thought, like, what are you going to do in L.A.? What are you going to do in New York? I mean, really, what do you get out of that? It's, it's well, with here, it's like I know everybody. I can do what I want to do. It's not hard to, like, piece together some sort of weirdo, like, music project if I want to try it. You know, it's very easy to set up, like, I can do, like, a, like a you know, a benefit or a charity gig anytime I want. Like, and it's, it's pretty easy to set up. And I know most of the people that are, that are, I don't know, it's just easy here. Like, I can do what I want. What's the benefit? Yeah, am I right? going to get, how, what am I going to get out of being, like, the smallest fish in the pond in L.A.? You know, I'm just another <laughs> motherfucker who moved here to make it. Like, really? <laughs> like, right. I mean, what are you going to get out of that? Like, there's no, and now even especially, like, good music transcends all. With your ability to be your own record producer and worldwide distributor with your phone, like there's, I mean, really, what do you gain out of that? I mean, maybe you gain life experience out of that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, those are, you know, big, big, crazy, bustling places are, 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 especially if you're, if you're younger, like that's an amazing life experience opportunity but don't kid yourself like you it's what you do with that experience that matters and you don't need to be someplace the idea that just moving someplace is gonna is gonna is going to um fix or catapult you is is silly because it's 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 always going to be with inside you no matter where you are no that's true like sheer sheer proximity to something isn't going to define or necessarily facilitate that sort of success it will just maybe make it easier to drive to auditions or whatever it is you're trying to do but that that doesn't mean you actually get that 
if you don't have it, like you said, inside of you. Right. It's like, what is, what is, what's the goal of your, basically make your decisions based on reality. Is it just complete delusion? Am I doing this for experience so I can take that and do with it no matter where I am? Mm-hmm. Like, that's just kind of like what I've thought about, like living here. It's like, I can, if I, if, if it got to the point where I felt like I couldn't do what I wanted to do, then I would look for someplace else to, to work. But I got, I got a lot of friends here and a lot of families right. here, you know, like my life is more or less here. Support the local scene. <laughs> yeah. And, um, the promoters, other bands, they, you know, took a chance on us and helped us out. So there's good people doing good work here and, you know, you know, ever, they deserve a shot. And like I said, it's, it's, it's a little bit tough to get that critical mass to break out. We try our, we try our best to help out with that. Yeah, for sure. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the fact that like, you know, I mean, you, how long have you been married now? 13 years. 13 years. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Cause I know that's always like, oh, wait, how long? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just hoping I didn't um, mess that up when I answered that. I, it's okay. If you did, I would have, uh, we, we could have retaken that question. And then, and you have three kids, right? You have like 10, like 10 or 11 year old. And, yeah. 12, 10 and six. And so, you know, how, do, how does it sit in your kids' heads as far as like, do they think what you do is cool? Um, or is it one of those things that, uh, you're, you're obviously kind of waiting for, the rebellion to kick in where it's like, Oh dude, dad's music is so lame. And like that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, how does that all, how does that all interplay? I'm still in cool. We're not, we're not, we're not at the point yet. It's funny. I'll That's go good. and help out. I'll help in the, in the classrooms and like, um, my kindergartner's class, people will be like, are you really a rock star? How do you, how do you respond to that? I, like, I'm like, <laughs> what do you expect? What do you think I should look like? like, like <laughs> because I don't look like I'm from the, the from guitar hero. I, I'm, I'm not like, I don't know. I don't know what these little kids expect me to, to like expect to. Right. Uh, like you're, you're supposed to show up with like, you know, Liberty spikes and like this, you know, like flame jacket or something exactly. like that. Then, then it'd be like, whoa, your dad really is a rock star. He just looks like a lame dad like that's boring yeah there's another there's another dad that i'm buddies with and i came in to um i came into my son's class and i was i was doing like christmas songs like when when he was in in a kindergarten and um you know then i was going to my other kids class to do to, to help out with their christmas party he's like so he, he thought i was like the school music teacher because <laughs> I, I was like so good I, oh yeah no i I'm in a band. Yeah. I, I do this. I do this for like my job. Yes. Oh, really? Oh, so you teach guitar? Oh, so yeah, you're the substitute music teacher. <laughs> that's kinda... incredible. I presume that's probably one of the hardest components of what it is you do for a living to you know kind of uproot yourself and and leave your family for a prolonged period of time. But I'm sure there's some semblance of like we know that dad has to do this, and you know there's that desire for when you come home, it's going to be that much sweeter. It's definitely a mixed bag getting what you want. You know, that's just the trade-off in it. Yeah, as the kids get older and their problems become more young adult it's it, it means it's a big deal to show up for them with what i've been able to do you know it requires me to put a lot of time in and a lot of you know distance from them because you know and i we don't make the kind of money where it's like you can just bring the whole family out on the road for the tour. You know, it's like, I look at it like this. It's a sacrifice to do it. You better have fun with it. If you're going out there and you're not, uh, you know, embracing it for what it is, then yeah, you're going to return home miserable and you're going to be, you know, a terrible husband and a terrible father. And it's just going to be this this horrible cycle you enter. Well, Jim, I am I will let you go, but I really, really appreciate you, uh, you know, kind of having these conversation and uh, talking about a few things. I, uh, hope, I, I hope I haven't bored you with these questions. No, no, it's all good, man. <laughs> Super cool, nice talking to you. So that is what 
Jim and I spoke about and recorded and am presenting to you now. Thank you very much for listening and hanging out. Like I said, special thanks to my friend Steve and special thanks to Jim for doing this because I wanted to really make sure this month of April was like huge, huge guest after huge guest. So I, I hope that we are delivering and we will continue to deliver because it is the fundraising month, like I said. So last urge and last, I would say implore, which that is the sign of the word, but last, yeah, last push, just visit the show notes of the show and you'll be able to see two links that will take you to a place where you can donate to this show. I would really appreciate if you considered that and thought about it and ultimately did it. That would be nice. The producer, as always, for this show is Tom Richfield who is doing a bang-up job on these things because sometimes these conversations are quite long and he has to make them into a tight hour if he can. (laughs) Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com, and you can actually sign up to a little email blast that I send out once a week on the right side of the page. You can just type in your email address. And uh, yeah, tune in next week for another awesome show in our great fundraising month. And then, yes, the third-year anniversary. It's coming up right around the corner. I think it's actually, uh, it's like May 6th, so the first week of May. You'll be getting some fun sort of facelifts to the show. So anyways, until next week, please be safe, everybody.